Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore the strange folklore and magical rituals associated with the greatest of fire festivals celebrated by the ancient druids, who, according to folklore at least, loved nothing more than lighting huge, gigantic bonfires, whatever the occasion, from the summer solstice to the winter solstice to midsummer to Halloween. But... There's one fire festival to rule them all, and that is the one we are going to focus on on this episode. We are going to explore the mysteries of Beltane. And so, to begin at the beginning. And fire, we are told, is closely connected with Welsh law because, like water, it was regarded as being purifying, healing, and in the days of old, more or less sacred. Fire was considered to be more or less sacred, and as such, it's hardly surprising that it plays such a prominent role in the many annual festivals celebrated by the ancient Druids. Like, for example, the Baltan. I am assuming that's how it's pronounced, B-A-L-T. T-A-N, not Beltane, we'll get to that very soon, but Baltan, with Tarn, of course, being the Welsh word for fire. T-A-N is fire, which is why, incidentally, Fireman Sam's original name was Sam Tarn in the Welsh language. But this Baltan, according to Welsh folklore, was a precursor to Beltane, and it was a time of festivities and merriment in which the sacred fire of the Druids was obtained directly from the sun, and from this, all of the hearth fires in Britain were rekindled. All of the hearths all across Britain were lit up with blazing flames from the sacred fire of the Druids, which they obtained directly from the sun, from the big boss in the sky. And these roaring fires were accompanied by feasts in honour of Bel. Again, I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced, B-E-L, the Celtic deity of light. And in the Druidical days, these huge feasts that accompanied the flames were carried out with much pomp and ceremony, like a modern-day royal coronation or procession. Now, in later times, the Baltan became known by, to quote, its corrupted name of, you guessed it, Beltane, which can be spelt in many different ways, but the most common spelling nowadays is B-E-L-T-A-N-E. And like Baltan, it was a time for lighting great fires, the most important of the Beltane fires being held on the 1st of May, but sometimes on the 2nd or the 3rd of that month. So traditionally on the 1st of May, on May Day, but possibly on the 2nd or the 3rd of May. And I should say at this point that on the 1st of May here in Wales, we also celebrate Kalan Mai, the first day of summer Kalan Mai, which is marked in much the same way as Beltane, 
big old fires and big old parties back in the good old days. And also, much of what is coming up shares a lot of similarities with Midsummer, which I won't dwell upon too much in this episode because I've recorded a separate episode all about Midsummer, episode 94, if you'd like to check that out afterwards. But if you're thinking some of this sounds a bit familiar, I think I might have heard something like this before, then yes, Beltane does share many similarities with Midsummer, But back to Beltane, and while I've described this as, or rather, folklore tells us that this is a tradition that can be traced back to the ancient Druids, it was certainly still going strong in the 19th century at the time this folklore was recorded, and they do specify specific places and specific years where they held these giant fires and parties in what they refer to as the south of Glamorgan, what we might nowadays say in the counties of Bridgend and into the Vale of Glamorgan, such as the common land beside the well of St. John in Porth Call, which had these gatherings between 1828 and 1830. A few years later, in 1833, they were in Cowbridge in 1835 near Nash Manor and between 1837 and 1840 in Llantwit Major. All of these places and presumably many more would see people gather around these giant druidical fires to celebrate the coming of summer. And if you're wondering how exactly these fires were made, well, handily, we have a description and it goes like this to quote, the fire was done in this way. Nine men would turn their pockets inside out and see that every piece of money and all metals were off their person. So all of their money was emptied out of their pockets beforehand, which, which sounds a bit like getting mugged, doesn't it? But it was done intentionally. They emptied their pockets then. The men went into the nearest woods and they collected sticks of nine different trees, which just goes to show the kind of practical knowledge that isn't passed on nowadays. Most people can't even name nine different kinds of trees, never mind finding them and collecting sticks from them. But when they did so, they gathered these sticks and they carried them to the spot where the fire had to be built. And it was there, a circle was cut in the sod and the sticks were set crosswise. So they set the sticks crosswise in a circle and all around the circle the people stood and watched the proceedings so the masses gathered and watched these selected men do all the work you'd think they'd offer to help but no they stood around chatting and laughing and drinking and dancing and having a good time while the selected men assembled the bonfire and one of the men would then take two bits of oak specifically two bits of oak rub them together until a flame was kindled. And this fire, these flames, derived from the oak, the most sacred of sacred trees, was then applied to the other sticks. And soon after, a large fire would be roaring away and the party would begin. Although it does add that this flame could sometimes be produced by stone, by knocking stones together instead of wood friction. But I guess oak would be the preferred option. Now, 
As you might have gathered by now, the Druids really liked their fire, so we are told. And if that wasn't enough fire, sometimes two fires were set up side by side. What can be better than one fire? Well, two fires. And these fires, whether there was one or whether there was two, was or were called a word that will be familiar to long-term listeners, especially if you've listened to the Halloween episodes. It was called Coilkerth, the Welsh word for bonfire, which is where, on the spookiest night of the year, on Norse Kalangaya of All Hallows' Eve, people gather round to protect themselves from the Hukhthi gutter, the tailless black sow that lurks in the darkness, and where they throw stones into the fire to predict which of them will not survive the coming 12 months. So, some nice spooky traditions around the bonfire on Halloween. And this bonfire was also used to play games, slightly less sinister games, at Beltane. And one of these games would involve one of my favourite ingredients of all. It was a game that involved cake. Yes, cake. All games should involve cake. And we are told that, to quote, round cakes of oatmeal and brown meal were split in four and placed in a small flour bag. So two different types of cake. One was oatmeal, one was brown meal, and both were split into four. So depending on how many players you had or how many potential victims you had, you would need, I guess, multiples of four, ideally multiples of eight, so you could have equal numbers of both cakes chopped up. And then everyone present had to pick out a portion from the bag and the last piece left in the bag went to the bag holder so this was a little bit like a lucky dip where you put your hand in the bag and you pull out a piece of cake blindly you don't know which one you're getting you might get the oatmeal or you might get the brown meal and next comes the important part because each person who chanced to pick up a piece of brown meal cake was compelled to leap three times over the flames or if there were two bonfires, to run thrice between them, by which means the people thought they were sure of a plentiful harvest, which all of a sudden things have taken a turn for the folk horror. It's all gone a little bit wicker man. So if you end up with a brown cake, in order to ensure there is a bountiful harvest that year, you now have to submit yourself to the flames which you might have to jump over three times. So you might risk singeing your feet or some other delicate part of your body, depending on how high the flames are by jumping over them. Or the alternative is, if there's two of these burning bonfires, you have to run between these blazing infernos. And the closer these fires are together, the, the more chance you have of singeing yourself, I guess, as you run between them. And if you are thinking to yourself, yes, it sounds dangerous, but at the end of the day, it's just a game. It's purely symbolic. Well, you might be wrong because, to quote... Shouts and screams of those who had to face the ordeal could be heard ever so far. So I think it's safe to say that they were being singed a little bit if people far away could hear those shouts and screams. And while you might be wondering at this point, 
who in their right mind would play this game? Well, besides the fact that you do have to ensure this bountiful harvest, no harvest means no food, which means no no you effectively. Also, we've only focused on the downside, on the bad bits. There was also an upside to all of this. Because if you picked the other cake, the oatmeal cake, well, you personally had a great time. For you and 50% of the people there, it was party time while the other half was suffering. Because this is a 50-50 game and we are told that those who chanced to pick the oatmeal portions sang and danced and clapped their hands in approval as the others, the holders of the brown bits, leaped three times over the flames or ran three times between the two fires. Talk about rubbing it in. As these poor souls risk life and limb for your harvest, you get to hang around laughing and singing and dancing and stuffing your face with cake. Which, personally, I think is a risk worth taking. If there's a 50-50 chance you get to hang around laughing and drinking and singing and eating cake, I would take those odds. Although we are told to quote that, as a rule, no danger attended these curious celebrations. So, apparently, there was no danger to any of those involved. And... I would argue that the screams and the shouting heard far away might contradict that, but as a rule, no danger attended these curious celebrations, but occasionally someone's clothes caught fire, which was quickly put out. Personally, I would consider my clothes catching fire a little bit more than no danger, but maybe you had to be there, and maybe health and safety were slightly different back in the 1800s. Now, moving on to sacrifice. And that was a seamless transition there, moving on to sacrifice. But it is something of a stereotype when it comes to talking about the so-called ancient druids. People like to accuse them of all manner of atrocities, including sacrificing animals and even sacrificing humans. To the gods again, we're back in Wickerman territory here. But whether or not there is any truth to it, well, that's a topic for another day. But for the purposes of this episode, our folklorist does tell us that their grandfather and father, so I'm assuming this would have been throughout the 1800s, they would say that in times gone by, the people would throw a calf in the fire when there was any disease among the herds. So if there's any disease among the herds, the people would throw a calf in the fire. The same would be done with a sheep if there was anything the matter with the flock. So these animals, presumably alive, apparently were sacrificed on the flames of these giant Beltane fires if there were problems with the herd or with the flock. And if only there was somebody around at the time to point out to them that what they should be doing is the exact opposite. If you've got problems with your cows dying, the last thing you want to be doing is throwing a young, healthy one onto the fire. You should be protecting it. You should be wrapping it in cotton wool and making sure nothing horrible happens to it. And besides being a horrific, inhumane act regardless, 
putting that to one side, from a purely financial point of view, you are quite literally burning money as well. This thing was stupid all around. Now, our folklorist continues to tell us that while they haven't seen this sacrifice themselves, which is a good thing, they do remember seeing cattle being driven between the two fires to stop the disease spreading. So this is in the late 1800s, maybe even in the early 1900s. They had personally seen animals involved in these fire festivals, but fortunately, by this point, they were paraded through the flames, not into them. So a bit like the game we discussed just now with the cakes, where people had to run between the flames. If there was a problem with the animals, then they might also be paraded through these two giant bonfires. And when, in later times they continue, it was not considered humane to drive the cattle between the fires, the herdsmen were accustomed to force the animals over the wood ashes to protect them against various ailments, which to me sounds a million times better. Animal welfare in ancient druidic folklore is slowly but surely catching up with the modern times. We've gone from burning calves to parading them between the flames to finally just waiting until the fire's out and they simply walk over those crumbling grey ashes. No fear of them being burnt. The only warmth they might feel is anything that remains in those ashes. They might have slightly warm cow feet at the end of it, or cow hooves, I guess I should say, but that is the only danger they face is slightly warm hooves as they make their way across, which, if it's a bit cold out there in the field, they might even be grateful for. What a great way to ensure that no disease and pestilence plagues them for the next year or for however long this lasts for. And talking about these ashes, they also had other uses besides being mats for cows to walk on or for animals to walk on. And we are told that charred logs and faggots used in the May Beltane were carefully preserved and from them the next fire was lighted. May fires were always started with old faggots of the previous year and midsummer from those of the last summer. So as with midsummer, the remains are preserved and then the following year, 12 months later, they will be rekindled to keep the sacred fire going, to keep that continuity going. And you also had to be careful not to mix up these ashes because we are told it was unlucky to build a midsummer fire from May faggots and presumably vice versa. And if that wasn't enough law connected to these ashes, not only could animals walk on them, not only did you have to store them and relight them a year later, but they also had some useful magical abilities. And we are told that these charred bits could come in handy around the house, because a charred brand was not only effectual against pestilence, but magical in its use. So these charred brands were magical. They could repel pestilence and a few of the ashes placed in a person's shoes protected the wearer from any great sorrow or woe. So if you're feeling a bit sad, you're feeling a bit down, put some of these magical ashes into your shoes and simply walk away the blues. Strut away your problems, as it were. 
And that curious and slightly impractical piece of law brings us to the end of this investigation into the strange superstitions surrounding Beltane. But we haven't even scratched the surface yet of the even stranger, yes, even stranger superstitions that are associated with this date, but under a different name. Because if you look at May the 1st in your calendar today, unless you have some specialist pagan calendar, there's a pretty good chance it will not say Beltane or Baltan, but May Day. May Day, which is, frankly, even weirder, even more bonkers than what you've heard so far on this episode. And as such, you will be glad to know that we will be investigating May Day on the very next episode. But for now, this brings us to the end of another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, please consider pressing the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode ever, including, of course, that May Day episode that is coming up soon. And if you really enjoyed this episode, you can support the podcast by treating me to a coffee via my website or even some exciting news here. By the time this episode goes live, my new merchandise page should be live and kicking on my website also. So if you want to be the most fashionable ghost hunter or folklorist in the world, wherever you are in the world, get yourself some Ghosts of Wales t-shirts or hoodies or caps or whatever tat I've put up there, and you will be the envy of all of your friends, all of your enemies if you have any. You will be the envy of all and Everyone will be stopping you to ask where you found such fashionable clothing. If you'd like more Ghosts and Folklore, you can follow me on social media. I'm on all of the main platforms. And as well as this podcast, I've also written a number of books about similar weird and wonderful subjects which are available from all good bookshops offline and on. Just search for my name and you'll find them all. And on that note... It just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And remember, if you are concerned about your harvest this year, just build yourself a giant bonfire. Crack open the cake and we can have a big old Beltane party. Until next time, no star.